0: Protective zeal. Praise God. I did too. I did too. I was just, oh, so blessed. And um, there's a continuation this morning. I want to preach this morning a message, kind of if you want to think of it as part two of um, this message on zeal. Don't let the sun set on your desire. Don't let the sun set on your desire. And um, For Scripture, um, I'm going to take one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament of faith and desire and God moving uh, in such a powerful way through our faith. From Joshua chapter 10 in the Old Testament, the Battle of Gibeon. And uh, some of you may not be aware of this, so um, I'll read the text and then we'll go through it and share. And I believe the Lord will bless you. Praise God. Joshua chapter 10. Before I begin reading at verse 7, let me just at least give you a little bit of a background. Um, Joshua has led the children of Israel out of the wilderness, across the Jordan River, and uh, into the promised land that they have been waiting for for 40 years to inherit this land. And so Joshua has led them in, praise the Lord, in the walls of Jericho. The first city collapsed. The second city had a little problem because they weren't obedient to the Lord and they They at first were defeated, but then they got it straightened out. And then from there, Joshua goes into what's called the southern campaign against the kings of the Amorites. The Amorites of all the different ites in the land of Canaan, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and so forth and so on, are the most wicked of all. They were the original enemies of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. They were were the people that just... Instantly, it was ingrained in them. They hated the delivered Jews and wanted to annihilate them. So, they have been running a run or had a they have had a running gun battle with Israel ever since they entered the, um, the, the uh, wilderness. And now that they have come into the land of Canaan, they are confederating and five Amorite kings have brought their kingdoms together, and after they saw what happened to Jericho, after they saw what happened at Ai, they're scared and they know if we don't kill these people and annihilate them right now, they will overrun us like they've overrun everyone else. So it's the Southern Campaign. It's, it centers around a great battle called the Battle of Gibeon. And so God is speaking to Joshua, about moving from his position in Gilead west to the city of Gibeon to engage these five enemies. For they have surrounded the, the city of Gibeon, and they, the five Amorite kings had decided to attack the Gibeonites. And let me just say this. Um, the Gibeonites are not Jewish. Um, They are probably the only people in the land of Canaan that made a truce with the Israelites. When Joshua led them into the Promised Land, the Gibeonites made a truce. And they said, we want to partner with you. We want to help you. We'll fight your battles. We'll stand with you. We'll be in one accord with you. So they're an ally of Israel. And so the five Amorite kings begin their campaign by attacking the Gibeonites, So Joshua is on a rescue mission. He and his army are flying west towards Gibeon to rescue the Gibeonites and to engage the Amorites. So you've got that? Joshua chapter 10, verse 7. So Joshua and his entire army, including his best warriors, left Gilgal and set out for Gibeon, quote, Do not be afraid of them, said the Lord to Joshua, for I have given you victory over them. Not a single one of them will be able to stand up against you. Joshua traveled all night from Gilgal and took the Amorite armies by surprise. The Lord threw them into a panic, and the Israelites slaughtered great numbers of them at Gibeon. Then the Israelites chased the enemy westward along the road to Beth Haran, killing them all along the way to Azekah and Makeda. As the Amorites retreated down the road from Beth Haran, the Lord destroyed them with a terrible hailstorm from heaven that continued until they reached Azekah. The hail killed more of the enemy than the Israelites killed with the sword. On the day the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amorites, Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of all the people of Israel. They must have shouted this out. And he said, quote, Let the sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stayed in its place until the nation of Israel had defeated its enemies. Is this event not recorded in the book of Jashar? The sun stayed in the middle of the sky, and it did not set as on a normal day. There has never been a day like this one before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel That day, somebody say, Praise the Lord! Wow, do you catch what was going on? So, let's just kind of review this. Um, Joshua gets his army and they push all through the night, and before the sun comes up, they are there at Gibeon, where the Amorite armies, the five Amorite kings, and their their people have surrounded the city and have attacked Gibeon and he surprises them in a pre-dawn attack, and confusion hits the ranks of the Amorites, and the Israelites are just picking them apart. And so the Amorites begin to flee westward. Now this is, they're moving westward into a mountainous area, and they move towards a pass through the mountains called Beth Haran. But once they get to Beth Haran and all the way to Beth Haran, the Israelites are picking them off and killing them as they go. As they hit the pass of Beth Haran, Beth Haran, when you go through the pass, it slopes down into a kind of a slight grade into more of an open area. So as they're going down into that area and with the possibility, if they get out ahead of the Israelites of escaping and being able to cut across the valley of Ajalon, And up into the hills, God decides to get in on the program, and he starts sending, I don't know how big they were, but they were something, because they were killing them. Giant hail, balls of hail start raining down, and the Bible says more were killed by the hail than than Joshua and his men were killing. So now it's, uh, it's about midday, it's around noontime. And all this has happened, but Joshua sees that there's still a substantial confederated army that's, that's, that's operating and that's trying to get away. And he realizes we don't have enough time, even if we fight throughout the rest of the afternoon into the early evening, we don't have enough time to wipe them all out. Joshua remembers the word of the Lord. When you enter this land, wipe out the Canaanites. Wipe out the Amorites. Don't leave a single one living in the land. Now, I don't have time to go into a commentary. I know that uh, kind of abuses our 21st century sense of sensibilities. But in context, if you saw all of the context, you would understand why God gave that order. By the way, this is the promised land that God has given as a gift to Israel, but it's full of enemies. So so Joshua is zealous, and he realizes that these guys escape into the hills, and they make it back to their cities. See, the kings have led their armies out of their cities, so they're out in the field. You don't want to have to go fight five different cities that are heavily armed with all of their armies in those cities. But while they're out in the field and you've got this great advantage and God's with you, let's get this done. That's what, that's what Joshua's thinking. So he sees I've got about a half a day left. And so Joshua sees the sun overhead and, then, and he shouts so that all Israel can hear him. He says, son, stand still over Gibeon. Now, Gibeon is to his east, and the sun has kind of come up there from the east, and he sees the valley of Agilon and the moon's still in the sky. It's one of those days, maybe it's a new moon or something, and the moon's kind of in the sky, so he says to the sun and moon, stand still, don't move, until I have wiped out all of our enemies. By the time the day is finished, and it's actually probably two days rolled into one, the sun stood still and did not move, so to speak. Now we know the sun really doesn't move. How many of you know that God's not picky? That he's not a legalist, and just because Joshua said Sun stand still, God didn't look at him and say, You didn't say that prayer in a very scientific way, because we all, you know, we we I know that the sun doesn't move. Now God knew exactly what he was saying, and more importantly, all of the thousands and thousands of of uh, people that heard him in Israel, they needed to know and understand what he was saying. So he said, son, stand still. God said, right you are. (laughs) And I don't know what he did. I have no idea what he did. I'm not here to give an explanation. I could frankly care less. I just know he did it. And so this went on, this daylight went on for, for probably at least 12 hours more than it should have until they had so defeated picked apart and annihilated the uh five amorite armies that the amorites from that day forward never reconstituted into a significant fighting force for the next hundred years couple hundred years or so the amorites were just simply a defeated disorganized group until finally they were wiped out during the time of David. The last of them were taken care of. And by the way, I would just mention this to you as we go into this story, that when the Amorite kings, because the Amorite kings were leading their armies, right? So if you're in one of those armies, you see your king out in front of you. It's encouraging. Your king's out there on a horse. He's leading you. So the Amorite kings were leading their armies, But when they saw, (laughs) when they saw the hailstorm and the hail, they said, we're getting out of here. And they took off. They left their armies. And the five of them went and found a cave in one of the foothills and went and hid inside the cave. But guess what? The Israelites saw them. And so Joshua got some of his men. He said, go and pile a whole bunch of rocks in front of that cave. And uh, let's go on. Let's get back in the fight. We'll come back and deal with these guys later. So after they had wiped out, after that two-day or whatever it was, uh, uh, battle, they came back, pulled the five kings out, wiped them out, and stuck them up on poles before the sun. Um, and so uh, those five kings, I just thought that was amazing that, uh, that the, the kings, when they saw that uh, God was using nature against them, They said, we can't fight against nature. And uh, they went out and hid in the caves. Now, we are not talking about fighting Amorites today, praise the Lord. But we are wrestling against powers and principalities that are just as bent on the destruction of Christ and his people and the annihilation of his church and of his body. And so this is very apropos. What I want to focus on for the rest of my message this morning is how God used Joshua to do what happened. Because at the end of the narr- narrative, it says there has never, ever before or ever after been a day like that when, when God hearkened to the voice of a man and made the sun to stand still. What kind of faith was Joshua operating in I want to talk about that this morning, and there's a little hint of where we're going in that title, Don't Let the Sun Set on Your Desire. So the first thing that I want to say to you is make God's purpose your desire. Let's start there, because I think a lot of Christians like to take the technology of faith. They like to read um, scriptures in the New Testament about faith in the Word of God, and planting the seed, and speaking the Word, and commanding the mountain to be removed. And and all those things are scriptural. They're all things that Jesus said to do. They're all um, examples of how we use our faith. And most Christians like to just kind of jump into the technology of how we use our faith. But there's a whole foundation that supported that, that is exemplified in the life and in the actions of Joshua and that foundation is that Joshua made God's purpose his desire. Joshua wasn't just running around the hill saying, these Amorites are nasty people. We need to get rid of them. The world would be a better place without these Amorites, so let's just wipe them out. He didn't come up with that idea. He didn't say to the sun, stand still, because he was in his battle against it. He was not doing his will. He was fulfilling God's plan and purpose. He was zealous for the will of God, so much so that he had allowed God to deal with him and bring his own passion and desires in alignment with God's will. Now, we all say, Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done. But how often do we really work, work in our lives to bring the things that we desire in line with God's purpose. Lord, what is your desire? What is your purpose? So that that is what I want more than anything. So much so that I will abandon things that I'm interested in to go pursue the things you're interested in. I realign my desires. I realign myself with your purpose. Remember, God said, do not be afraid of them. The Lord said to Joshua, for I have given you victory over them. There's the first key to faith. God said, this is my purpose. This is my plan. I have given you victory over them. Sometimes when we go and engage our own enemies or engage our own plans and purposes, not necessarily in the scope of God's will or God's plan, we try to use those principles of faith, and they just don't work quite as smoothly as apparently this sun-stopping, mountain-moving faith that Joshua was operating in, they just don't seem to unfold and work like that. Because in those things that are outside God's will, God has not given us the victory. But God said, look, I've given you the victory. I would rather fight the battles God's given me the victory over, Terry. I have fought a few battles that God did not give me the victory over. I know the difference. And when I fought a battle that God's given me a victory over because that's what He wants, and I passionately pursued that because I wanted it like He wanted it, that's when that mountain-moving faith, that sun-stopping faith shows up. Somebody say, praise the Lord, if you're beginning to see where we're going with this. Listen, if I could hear Joshua say, when the Lord said, I have given you the victory, I could hear, not Joshua, but maybe some of his men, or maybe we who are sort of watching this, this story from the sidelines, well, if you've given me the victory, why do I have to fight? I mean, if you have given me the victory, why do I have to fight? Why don't you just fight? Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to engage the enemy? Why do I have to pursue things and go through struggles and, and uh, risk being wounded and uh, use up my time, my strength, my energy, my fortune, my health, everything in pursuing the thing you've given me victory over? Why do I have to fight if you have given me the victory? How many of you see the sense in asking a question like that? Well, the answer to that question is very simple. It's because true faith walks on the legs of desire. Faith, true faith, is not based in some mental acuity, some mental ability to grasp the truths of the Bible. Those are called beliefs, and everybody's got beliefs. And you can have very accurate scriptural, biblical beliefs and absolutely no faith. See, no faith, uh, faith, real true faith, has legs. And the legs of faith is desire. Desire provides faith, the legs it needs to move on. In fact, David said in Psalm one of my favorites, One thing have I desired, that also will I seek after. Have you noticed that when you truly have desire that God's put in your heart, you put the effort into seeking after it? If you have desires but you're not seeking after it, guess what? You're going to end up being a frustrated Christian. You're going to be frustrated and wondering why God isn't blessing and uh, preserving you. But true faith has the legs called desire. Listen, your faith will never travel beyond where your desire has stopped and settled. If you are wondering why you haven't progressed any farther in a particular thing that God's put on your heart, it's not because your faith fell apart. It's not because your faith failed. It's because your desire settled. Your desire stopped. When desire settles, when desire is satisfied, when desire stops pushing, faith stops working. Faith cannot and will not work beyond your desire. One thing have I desired, that also will I seek after. You see, beliefs are abstract, unchallenged opinions. They can be accurate beliefs. You can believe that uh, by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. That's a theology. But in the life of someone who's passionately with desire pursuing Jesus as their healer, it's not an abstract opinion. It is something they are moving towards. Real faith is always moving on the legs of desire. Beliefs, as I said, are abstract, unchallenged opinions. Many Christians are trying to move mountains with abstract, unchallenged opinions. They may be true and based on the word, but in your life or in my life, if that's what the way we're operating, they are opinions that are unchallenged. And Satan will defeat them every single time. But real faith, real faith, unlike opinions, real faith is always a place that you're going to. If you want to think of what is faith versus beliefs, beliefs are static. They don't move. They just sit there in your life. But true faith is whatever you are pursuing. Faith shows up when you're going somewhere. Praise the Lord. You can't defeat the devil with opinions, but I'll tell you this. You must be on the move with faith, for the devil cannot deal with and will always have a hard time with a Christian that is moving beyond their opinions and their beliefs and moving into pursuing what God has put in their heart And their faith is operating. The devil can't hit a moving target. He's got to get you to stop. And the only way you get a Christian to stop is drain their desire. Stop their desire. Get them to be satisfied. Give them whatever they need to be satisfied. Some people have just grown as much as they want to grow, and they're not going to grow anymore. Their desire has been satisfied. On that day, faith stops moving in their life. They are settled with beliefs. They're farming and settling with beliefs while people of faith are still moving like pilgrims and strangers. They're pressing in to the things of God. Somebody say praise the Lord. I like the way Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. He had gone into a Pharisee's house and uh, people were thronging in. But uh, a paralyzed man, tried to get in and couldn't get into the house, wanted to be healed by Jesus, climbs up on the roof, tears open the roof, and his friends let him down on his pallet. And the Bible says they brought him a paralyzed man lying on a cot, and Jesus seeing their faith. Why? Because it was moving. It was going somewhere. He saw their faith. He didn't see their beliefs. He saw their faith. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and he was healed. You'll never know true faith until you're pursuing something God wants you to want. Let me repeat that. Until you are pursuing something God wants you to want, you'll never know true faith. That's where faith shows up. Joshua was pursuing something God wanted him to want. That's why I begin by saying real true faith, the secret is, Make all of your wants and desires align with what God wants. And I ask you this question, certainly not to condemn anyone. It's a convicting question. It certainly convicts me. So I figure, why should I, you know, why should, why should you go unpunished? <laughs> so I ask you the question, the things you desire, that you truly are pursuing or desire, are they the things that God wants? Oftentimes, our faith is crippled. The passion of our desires are being drained, being burned off on pursuits that God doesn't want, and we don't have very much emotional energy or mental focus left to focus on what God wants. That's what Jesus meant when He said, seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. All this stuff will be added. When you are walking with a desire for the things of God. Not the abstract general things of God, but the thing God has said in your life that you know God has spoken to you about. Hallelujah. When you are pursuing and moving that, there's a faith that's breathing and living, rising up, moving in you. You'll see God operate, praise the Lord. So, Jesus explains in the gospel, He explained that faith begins with, or Faith begins, if you will, as desire-driven prayer and proclamation. We're all familiar, most of us, with his statement about faith in Mark 11. Jesus said to them, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If someone says to this mountain, be lifted up and be thrown in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. For this reason, I tell you, whatever you desire, there's the magic word. Whatever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive it, and it will be yours. That's what Jesus said. David kind of teed that ball up back in Psalm 27. We said, one thing if I desired; that also will I seek. You see, David took all of his desires, and David was a... Um, David was a Renaissance man. He had many abilities, many gifts, many distractions. He was distracted by women. He was into music. He was into fighting, into ruling, into all kinds of things. David was not a monofocused, one trick pony. David had lots of abilities, lots of talents, and he, he had his fingers in all of them. Yet, David distilled down his heart, distilled down his life so that his life became about one thing. Forget all the others. I can live without them. I thank God if he's blessed me with them, but that's not what I pursue. Lord, one thing have I desired, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. Behold your presence, that I might see you and live before you, O God. That is the one thing I desire, and that will I seek after. So David was a man that got all the other things that ate up his time, the sins that were so easily besetting and the weights, and he put them in a place where they couldn't hinder, and he distilled his desires. Not, oh, Lord, I've got seven great desires, and you're one of them. You're in my top three, Jesus. Top three is never going to produce a faith that will make the sun stand still. One thing have I desired. And so Jesus said... If you say to the mountain, and doubt not in your heart, you say, well, you know, that's the hard part, doubting. You know, when desire has been distilled down to what God is really saying in your life, you will say to the mountain, and you will not doubt in your heart. You see the doubts, those nagging, irritating undercurrents of, oh, what if it doesn't, what if, do you know where they come from? They come from a divided life that's got four and five other things going on at the same time. That's why you can't bring yourself down to that one absolute single-eyed focus because you've got all these other people that you're listening to and all these other opinions that you're concerned with. But when you get to the point where your only one concern is Jesus and what he says and what he is specifically saying in your life right now, you will have that consolidated faith that believes that what it says will come to pass. That's where that unity, that unibody construction of faith comes from. So let God inspire and shape your desire until it becomes His purpose. Then God's mountain-moving faith will arise in your life. Now let me kind of take this message into kind of another, another area that needs to be part of this. Because these guys are in a battle, right? So when you let God shape your purpose, your, your desire into His purpose, then Mount Moving Faith will arise, but it's not the only thing that will arise. The minute you begin to operate in Mount Moving Faith, the minute you begin to desire that one thing that is the thing of God, enemies will also arise. Nothing brings enemies out of the woodwork like the will of God inserting itself into your life. The minute you do it, the enemy is going to show up to fight it. Why? Because he's God's enemy. And wherever he sees that God has put his foot down in somebody's life, he will show up to oppose you. He'll show up to distract you. He will show up to try to scare you into defeat and wipe you out if he possibly can. Have you ever noticed God gave Joshua and the Israelites the promised land? Everyone say, promised land. Imagine if you'd spent 40 years in the wilderness and and for 40 years your children, your parents, your grandparents, everyone's talking about all the promised land. Spies went in, they had corn this big, pots of honey like this, vegetables like that, the land flowing with milk and honey. Imagine their expectation. Imagine this. There's no place like, and it's ours. God says it's ours, the promised land. I can't wait to take hold of it. But have you ever thought it was a little peculiar that the gift, the promised land that God gave them was filled with enemies? Wow, thanks, God. Has God ever given you something and it had problems? There were issues. You had to deal with things. You were expecting a ready-made house, but what he did was he gave you a pile of materials and some time to work on building it. Wow, thanks for the promised lands, full of enemies. That's how God God operates. You want to know why? Because God knows he can do it. He knows he can do it through you. If you will make His will, His purpose, your desire, God has every intention of raising you up and using you like He did Joshua. Five Amorite kings, big deal. So what? You're going to fight them, but you will be victorious. I have given you the victory. God's purposes are always surrounded by forces that are dead set against them. Always. Whenever you step into the purpose of God, you are stepping into, an, you're stepping into the octagon. And they are, like the gladiator, I don't know if you all saw that gladiator movie years ago. You're thrown into the gladiator pit, and there's all these dudes in there with all these different ways to kill you, and they're all coming after you. That's your blessing. That's your, that's your gift. God says you're going to rise up, you're going to dominate, but you will fight. The fight of faith to lay hold on eternal life. First Timothy 6:12: Fight the fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life. Well, God, why don't you just give it to me? I did give it to you. Now go defeat the enemy with it. That's eternal life. We want fightless life. We want stress-free life. We want difficulty-free life. We want enemy-free life. Come on, somebody. You sound like people that don't know what I'm talking about. Praise the Lord. Do you understand the world that you live in? Do you understand that this world is a fallen world for the time being, and that it is being run by a devil that doesn't want God to repossess the nations of the earth, take control, bring Adam's blessing back into place through Jesus Christ? Enemies that are, the God is not trying to hide you from the enemy. He's trying to dangle you in front of the enemy. When Jesus prayed for you and I in John chapter 17, he didn't say, oh, Father, hide them from the devil. He said, I pray that you don't take them out of the world. Leave them there. Let the devil see them. I pray that you will keep them from caving in and joining the world. But don't hide them from the world. The world needs to see them because they're captives that the enemy has captive. They need to see you fighting that enemy that controls their life. (coughs) By the way, in our illustration, notice that the Amorite armies began their campaign against Israel by attacking Israel's allies. Did anyone happen to notice that when we read the narrative? Took me a couple times reading it before I realized. The five Amorite kings come together, so we're going to wipe out Israel. Let's start with their ally, Gibeon, the city of Gibeon. They used to be our, they were our neighbor, and they joined Israel. They were the only ones that joined Israel. So let's begin to destroy Israel by picking off their supply. We'll hit their supply lines. We'll hit their support people. We'll take out their allies. We're not going to hit them head on right off. We'll go after their friends. We'll isolate them. We'll keep them from being able to resupply. We'll discourage them. We'll show them that the things you love, we can destroy. You ever wonder why God begins to do a work in your life, and the next thing, hell breaks loose. The next thing, the things you depend upon, start. the devil starts touching them. Wow, if God's with me, how come the devil is going after my Gideonites? My Gibeonites, rather. Hey, man, leave my Gibeonites alone. Satan's going after your friends. Satan's going after your allies. Satan's going after your supply sources because it's a way to pick apart your life and get at you. So when you start seeing these things happen, stop going into a slump saying, wow, God's abandoned us. Oh, wow, why all these things are happening. We must not be in the will of God. No, 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 honey, you are in the will of God. Start acting like it. Start thinking like it. Do you understand? You are a warrior of faith. The Bible doesn't say that God gave you a choir robe. It says he gave you armor. Put on the whole armor. God doesn't say put on the, put on the priestly gown. It doesn't say put on the, the, the choir robe of faith. It says put on the armor. Amen. Yes. The reason the Ukrainians are beating the Russians is because the Russian army is really good for one thing parades. They're real good at parades, but they're not so good at fighting. God did not save you and give you Jesus' armor to parade. Are you listening? There's one reason why nobody beats the U.S. military, because they're absolutely the best at fighting. Not parading, fighting. So notice that, 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 that the enemy begins his campaign by going after your allies. The other thing I want you to notice, why did God jump into the fight? It seems like Joshua really had a pretty good handle on it. Came on him at night, was picking him apart, chasing him along into this valley, and, but God decides, To get in on it, and he winds up killing more with hailstones. The Amorites worshiped nature. The Amorite gods were gods of nature the hail, the sky, the rivers, the mountains. That was their gods. So, what did God, what did the God, what the God of Israel, what did your God do? He said, Your gods have abandoned you. Guess what? They're throwing rocks at you. Your gods have turned against you. Are you listening? When I pray over the enemies of the body of Christ, when I pray and stand and I take dominion over the powers of darkness that are operating in this country to destroy and to pull, I just simply command those hailstones to come down, those things that they trust in to fall apart, turn on them, turn against them. How did God defeat enemies? He, I don't know what he did to those to those, um. Uh, I forget which, which group of enemies. I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think it was the... Uh, it was one of those ites, Midianites or somebody, had surrounded the city of Dothan. And then there was another one where they surrounded the city of Samaria. And, they, and many times the enemy would have God's people surrounded and God would do something. I don't know. He'd go into the camp and just, I don't know, he went and clapped his hands. and They all went crazy and started turning on one another. But But God... Knows how to make the enemy eat himself up. He knows how to open up the earth so that their trillions and billions of dollars in which they trust goes down the rat hole and they get nothing for it except broke. God knows how to fight battles in ways that you and I can't. And so God jumped in that fight because his man Joshua was hot. He was after it, man. He was zealous. When God sees zeal, he gets zealous. That's what I'm trying to say. God saw the zeal in Joshua, and it excited him. He said, let me have a crack at them. I'll use their gods against them. Hallelujah. I wish I could go on. Can't say any more about that. Praise the Lord. You just have to get it or not get it. So if you think that the the Amorites were discouraged when, when they saw the God of Israel had turned nature against them, what do you imagine must have been going through their mind when they saw Joshua go, "Son, now, that's the God of gods." There, and if you're a nature worshiper, right? Joshua commands the highest of their gods, stand still, don't move, while I wipe these people out. And they're probably be thinking, "Wait, that's our god. That, that's our god, the sun. We, we worship the sun god." Now, I don't know if they. If their their highest worship was the sun god, I just happen to know that most of those goofed up people that are have these demonic religions, they always end up worshiping you know forces of nature, lightning, fire, volcanoes, stuff like that. So what do you think? God inspired Joshua, put it in his heart, command the sun to stand still so that you have enough light to finish them off, and it was the enemy that saw that God hearkened to the voice of a man. And that finished them off. There was nothing left. The five kings said, we're out of here. We're out. We're, find me a cave. They ran. They fled. You can take every one of these principles I'm sharing with you this morning, take them home with you. Put them to work. matter of fact, I highly recommend I'm not up here talking for no reason. I'm hoping you'll take these home and put them to work in your life. Can you say amen? There is no power in the world that is greater than faith in God's Word burning in a heart of unstoppable desire. That was the combination going on in Joshua's life. So much so that God suspends the laws of nature to honor that kind of faith. There's a key to miracles. God suspends the laws of nature to honor the unstoppable heart of desire that is moving in mountain moving faith because it's like God. That's why Jesus said in Mark 11 23, and 24, have faith in God. Another translation says, have the faith of God or have God's godlike faith. The faith that God moves in, you operate like that. You take the time. And by the way, I stress the term time, it takes time. You have to develop a lifestyle that makes the things of God your greatest desire. That walk develops as you develop that desire in the things of God and start getting a handle on all the things that are pulling and picking your life apart in other directions. Mountain-moving faith doesn't wait to be cleared by nature and reason. Notice, any other general, any other person would just by reason— say well we're running out of daylight there's going to be enough of this army to get away we're going to have to fight them they're going to get to their cities they're going to retreat they'll get to their cities and then we're going to have to go have these long protracted battles to try to get these guys out of their cities it's going to be a costly fight and it'll take a long time most people would just say well that's the way it is we can't fight science we can't fight nature that's right you can't fight nature If nature's going to define your desire and limit your faith, you can't fight science. If you're going to let science and nature be bigger or corral your desire for the things of God, you will never move beyond it. Remember what I said. Faith will never move beyond wherever your desire stops. And nature stops most people's desire. Well, sun's going down. We can't do anything about it. Isn't there ever anything that jumps up in you and says, wait a minute. God made nature. God made the sun. God can change this. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, I didn't expect you to stop the sun or throw mountains into the Gulf of Mexico tomorrow. Although, if you do, call me because that would be awesome. I'd love to see that. But you start somewhere. You start somewhere. Begin in your own house. When sickness and attacks from the enemy, when the obvious strategy of the enemy, enemy starts kicking the front door open and walking into your house, what do you do about it? Do you let science just take over? You all of a sudden, got, and I love doctors. I don't have to be one of these people that think, oh, doctors are the devil, and they just don't trust in God. They trust in the arm of flesh. That's nonsense. I've got an awesome doctor, family physician I've had for 32 years. He believes that Jesus is the healer. He's just kind of helping set things up for Jesus to do the healing. So I'm not one of these guys that has that stupid opinion about doctors that that some Christians have. But I will say this. If the minute the enemy kicks the front door and comes into your house, the very first thing you said is, well, that's about as far as we're going to get with that. And you start running, you know, to the arm of flesh. And by the way, uh, faith doesn't become disrupted just because you call the doctor. How many of you know that? I call the doc. I pop the aspirin and say, in Jesus' name, headache, go. No. Boom, there go the aspirins, praise God. So, God suspends the laws of nature to bless that kind of faith. The faith that moves mountains is not stopped by what it doesn't understand about past failures. Listen very carefully. It only considers what it does know. Every one of us have had experiences in our life where we stepped out and believed God for something, and it didn't happen. Maybe our children prayed for healing, you know, or something like that. And it didn't happen. Um, I have a whole basket, giant basket full of prayers of faith and standing on the Word that I've prayed for people and for situations that did not receive the answer that I was looking for. And when I am confronted with something and I have to believe God, I stay out of that basket because I don't know what happened. I don't understand it. So guess what? You can call me simple if you want, but I just keep my mind out of what I don't understand. I don't let it bother me. I don't care. (laughs) I don't know why, and I frankly don't care. I only care about what I know is true. I don't worry about what I don't know. I can't answer why a thing doesn't happen, but I know that God said this is what will happen if you do this. So if I get up to bat and I strike out, I am not going to walk up to that plate next time I'm up to bat expecting to strike out. But Christians do it all the time. Matter of fact, they preach it from the pulpit. Don't even bother going back up to the plate because you know you're just a strikeout. There's no use in even trying to swing. You're not going to hit the ball. You understand what I'm saying to you? One of the greatest verses in the Bible is in Deuteronomy 29 and 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, so that we may do all the words that He has spoken There is such power and revelation in that verse. It says the secret things belong to the Lord. In other words, it's a secret. I don't know why I prayed for so-and-so and they didn't get healed. It's a secret. I don't know. It's a secret to me because I don't know the answer. And unless God says, I want you to know the answer, and he tells me, then I don't know. It's a secret thing. It's in the basket that I don't eat out of. I don't keep going back to that basket and eating out of it. Because life is filled with challenges. And so what am I going to eat? I'm going to eat what I know God has put in front of me. The things that are secret belong to the Lord, but what's revealed belongs to me. So what what has God given me? God has given me what I know his word has said. That's what I know. Well, how do you know it's true if you tried it and it didn't work? I don't know about that. You say, oh, Pastor, that's too simple. Let me tell you what, you get any more complicated than that, you'll never move. Paralyzed. You'll be paralyzed. You'll never move forward in life. You cannot allow what you don't understand to be the arbiter and rule over what God has revealed to you. I don't subject the word of the Lord to what I don't understand. I, I make it simple. I just walk by what I do understand. Praise God. Now, you guys are probably scholars because most people I know would be jumping up and down and shouting if they heard something like that, they'd be like, "Whoa, glory to God, Say that again. But I know you're deep. So, so rather than allowing your faith to be paralyzed by what you don't know, use what you do know. It's kind of simple. So I'm going to bring this to a close. When God has revealed to you His will, He revealed His will to Joshua. My will is that you wipe out all these Amorites. That's my will. When God has revealed His will, run with it. Run with it. Make it your desire. Get passionate about it. Don't sit there and analyze it. Don't think, well, you know, we were, there's only going to be 24 hours a day. I don't know how we'd come up with a strategy. He didn't worry about it. He said, come on, let's go. And they ran through the night. It is also amazing to me. I think the other thing besides weak desire that beats us is laziness. Joshua and his men ran all night. And by the way, if you ever look at a map, they went from Gilead to Gibeon, it's nothing but mountains between the two. They were running through hills all night and attacked them before the sun got up. Then they continued that battle all day, plus an extra day, which would have been at least 12 more hours. So what what are we looking at there? We're looking at uh, 36 hours plus the night before it all started. You think that boys were tired? You think they were worn out? Yeah. Where were they getting the energy from? Where was it coming from? Listen. Mount it when you sync up your desire with the purpose of God, it'll energize you. Amen. It'll you will get excited operating in the Lord's victories. It'll keep you young while your body grows old. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, I know a couple of you could have shouted amen right there. Praise the Lord. So when God reveals his will to you, run at it. Run at it and keep running. Run through the night. Command the day to stretch out. Don't retire your desire at the foothills of a setting sun. God is willing to keep that sun in the sky If you're willing to go there. How many of you are willing to go there in your life? Glory to God. If you feel as though your faith has subsided, and here's our altar call. If you feel as though your faith has subsided, settled down where your desire settled, and you're listening to this message saying, ooh, I need to stir myself up. I need to to make God's will my, my primary project. If you feel as though your faith has subsided... I want you to know. I want to, number one, encourage you. Your faith is still there. The Bible says God has given you the spirit of faith. He has put His faith in you. It is still with you. It has not left you. Stir your desire and faith will arise. Stir your desire. Desire is the legs of faith. Beliefs sit there and think Faith gets up and runs with the things of God. And I, if I keep going, I'll just be redundant. So let me stop, and I'd like you to close your Bible. Stand with me this morning.